Welcome back to another season of the Lead with Data podcast. In this exciting new season, we'll be focusing on engaging with leaders in the healthcare and medical sector who are at the forefront of leveraging data. It's evident that this industry has been underserved when it comes to effectively utilizing data, facing challenges with data privacy, data sharing. However, these challenges also present numerous opportunities for the sector to harness the power of data and drive decision-making and research. I'm thrilled to announce that I'll also be joined by my co-owner, Tracy Rowe, who'll be joining me to interview some of these incredible guests. Together, we're eagerly looking forward to discovering, learning, and gaining a deeper understanding of the impacts that data analytics can have in this industry. Stay tuned for some enlightening conversations that will shed light on the potential transformation brought about by data-driven practices in the healthcare and medical sector. Welcome back to the Lead with Data podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have David Rankin as our guest on the show. David is the Director of Clinical Governance and Informatics at Cabrini Health, and he's got over 30 years of senior leadership under his belt. He's a true expert in delivering quality healthcare and shaping policies. David has dedicated his career to improving health outcomes by focusing diligently on the underlying processes and procedures. He's all about enhancing provider performance and making sure that people have access to some of the best healthcare that's available both at a local and national level. In this episode, David will share with us how he's tackled some of the challenges of getting data to specialists. His approach has not only made data meaningful, but also useful for healthcare professionals in helping them drive better solutions for their patients. So let's get into this conversation where David will share some of his insights and practical tips. Thank you very much, David, for joining me on the show today. It's a pleasure. Look, I'll get you to introduce yourself like I do with all my guests. So did you want to maybe give us a bit of a background of your career and I guess what you're doing now? Sure. I'm the Director of Clinical Governance and Informatics here at Cabrini Healthcare, uh, one of Australia's larger private hospitals. I've had a very varied career. Graduated from medicine 40 years ago, Otago Medical School, uh, and then moved into general practice for about four and a half years. Then went off and did a master's in health administration, master's in public health in the US. Came back to Australia and then to New Zealand to as chief executive uh, of a private surgical hospital in Auckland for around six years. Um, then uh, went down to Wellington to uh, be the general manager for healthcare procurement with the Accident Compensation Corporation. A delightful eight years there, trying to purchase healthcare in the most efficient and effective way. As part of that, developed an interest in reporting back uh, to doctors how their performance compared with others uh, and started to realise some of the challenges uh, that we faced. From there, I moved on to the Ministry of Social Development, um, leading some quite significant reforms in sickness and invalids benefit and then uh, children in care, trying to get education, health and social services to collaborate um, and work together on extraordinarily complex young children in, in state care. Moved across to Australia as Executive Director of Medical Services uh, at one of um, the uh, public uh, health services here in the Melbourne area, and then um, Medibank uh, for four years, working in private health insurance as their clinical director, getting a quite robust understanding of how private health insurance works. Again, one of the side challenges 
was presenting to specialists how their performance compared with their peers. And so Medibank produced a series of reports uh, on surgical variation. Um, it was towards the end of that time that I uh, uh, talked to Cabrini uh, about a role in clinical informatics and uh, have been here now for five years. Yep, fantastic. So I guess um, for the listeners, what is clinical informatics in a very short version, I suppose, if you can? The way I interpret it is it's making data meaningful. We have this enormous collection of data in our patient administration systems that has the potential to identify variation, help practitioners improve their performance, but the challenge is making it meaningful. And that that's really, really hard. Yeah, yeah. So where did the, for you, obviously being sort of more on the front line, um, working with the patients directly, at what point did you find in your career that you wanted to change the way you were providing that support and contributing? I guess one of my early experiences uh, while working with Accident Compensation Corporation in New Zealand was working with orthopaedic surgeons. We had uh, a lot of fun. They were contentious meetings. Um, We provided a large portion of the income for the orthopaedic surgeons in in New Zealand. And so it was a a fractious relationship, but realised that they really held the power. They were the ones that decided who needed surgery. They were the ones that decided when the surgery would occur uh, and how long the person would spend off work Mm -hmm. after that surgery. And so we sent out some reports to the orthopedic surgeon saying, if you do a knee arthroscopy, relatively straightforward, simple procedure, you routinely put your patients off work for one week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever. And it was the first time most of those orthopaedic surgeons had realized how they compare with their colleagues. When we were paying $350 a day in earnings rate of compensation, to have somebody off work for a week versus three weeks had a huge impact on our outlay. Yeah. And so getting responses back from orthopaedic surgeons saying, oh, I've always put my patients off work for three weeks after an arthroscopy. I'm not quite sure why. And it's fascinating to see that the majority of my colleague orthopedic surgeons only put them off work for 10 days. That change in practice and awareness resulted in in huge financial gains um, to to ACC. But then realizing it was a lot more complicated, um, that, you know, was ACC, the health funder, seen as the policeman? And by giving this information out to orthopedic surgeons, some became quite paranoid. Mm-hmm. Um, and said, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so many of them didn't understand the data. Um, so all of these issues about how do you present data in a non-threatening, um, constructive, collaborative way uh, to specialists started coming through. And as I say, that practice has been, or they, those concerns were very similar when he started working with sickness and invalids benefits. Yeah. You know, telling GPs that they tend to put people on the sickness benefit for three years when most of their colleagues put people on the sickness benefit for six weeks. Yeah. Um, you know, as a trial period to try and, and normalize their behavior. Yeah. And then particularly working here at Cabrini, we send out about 335 individual 
reports to our procedural specialists every quarter, realising that each individual's quite different. Yeah. Um, there's a few great specialists who love data, love graphs, and they're into yeah. it. The majority of specialists will email back and say, oh, my goodness, David, there's a lot of data here. <laughs> yeah. where, where do I start? What do you mean? Uh, how do I interpret it? And so that, that's been a fascinating learning yeah. process. Absolutely. And I think coming from um, somebody like yourself who has sort of worked um, directly with the patients and had that experience, I think you can bring a different lens in terms of the analytics and, and the way that you're supporting them as well, but also understand some of the challenges. So if we maybe talk about some of those, what do you believe are some of the most common challenges um, when you're trying to deliver value to the specialists and the you know the doctors and the frontline staff? Challenges come at lots of levels. First of all, let's start with data. Mm-hmm. As a data analyst uh, or informatician or however, we think doctors are intelligent and they are very intelligent, but we assume they have an intuitive understanding or interpretation of graphs. And I'm supervising a PhD student who recently published a paper where the student took three graphs, a a histogram, a bar graph, a funnel plot uh, with confidence intervals and a box plot graph and a table of data um, and went to a panel of specialists or a a group of individual specialists and first of all said do you understand what the graph means Um, and secondly how do you interpret the data in this graph and that research showed that the vast majority of specialists don't understand complex graphs yeah so the number of specialists that could interpret a a box plot uh, was very very small Uh, most of them a majority of them understood a simple histogram, mm-hmm. um, so a bar graph. The vast majority of them understood a table and were able to look at a table. And yet, as a information scientist, if you like, yeah. um, we create these enormously complicated graphs and think yeah. they're brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the people that receive them haven't got a clue. I mean, <laughs> one of my favorite anecdotes, uh, I have a friend yeah. who developed cancer and went to see a specialist Mm -hmm. here at Cabrini. And uh, as part of the discussion, uh, my friend said to the specialist, oh, I know Dr. David Rankin. And the specialist said, oh, you mean Dr. Numbers? (laughs) (laughs) And then he said, you know, David sends me these brilliant, Reports every quarter. I haven't got a clue what they mean, but oh. they're really good. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sitting in my chair thinking I send out these 300 plus reports every yeah. quarter and all the surgeons look at them and concentrate and understand them. The reality is not, yeah. not like that. Other areas, we don't explain what the consequence of the data is. Mm-hmm. And so many of the specialists, quite rightly, view the data with caution or trepidation. They can see that they're different from their peers and they have an explanation for it, but they don't know how I've interpreted it. So, you know, is this the start of a disciplinary process? Will it mean they lose their ability to operate at Cabrini? Mm -hmm. Um, So sending out the data um, has nuanced implications, particularly with a group of specialists who don't understand what the implications are. Yeah. In the past, some of the data has been used 
dare I say, inappropriately in a policeman type context, um, saying, we've got this data and you're bad. Mm -hmm. We want you to shape up. And that, you know, that that creates unpleasantness um, around data and interpretation. So there's a couple of principles that we try to adopt when using the data. First of all, the data screening data, it's not diagnostic. Mm-hmm. It, so I like to say, here's, here's some patients of interest. Yeah, They didn't go the way I, I would expect them to have gone. There may be a really good explanation for them, but it, it might be worth having a look at. Yeah, It's not diagnostic data. So I can't say you're a good surgeon or you're a bad surgeon. Yeah. I can't create a league table. I can't even tell my friends who the best specialist is because it depends so much on context. But what I want the specialist to do is to have a look at their their cases uh, and see whether they could have done something differently. As long as that's occurred, then then I think the data has been really useful. I think the data is for coaching, not for policing. Mm -hmm. So ideally, it, it, it establishes a relationship of accountability and discussion. So what do I want the specialist to do with the data? I want the specialist to look at their data, um, to consider it, think about it, and ideally discuss it with their peers in a supportive peer environment to see if they could have done something differently. Or are there processes in the hospital that should change? Or um, you know, uh, are there techniques um, that, that would have led to a different outcome? Then there's the whole issue of the culture within the hospital of the use of the data. And certainly here at Cabrini, um, I generate the data, but I don't routinely share it with any of the administrative yeah. staff. So unless unless I have very significant concerns about what I think may be a, a, a concerning trend, you know, I won't share the data with the senior medical leadership and certainly not with the chief executive. I, I, I don't think the chief executive needs to know about issues with routine performance variants. Some of the issues with the data itself are important. You can overwhelm with data points. Yeah. And when I see some of the dashboards, I got an email this morning from somebody advertising their skills in Power BI. Yeah. And they sent me, you know, here's some sample dashboard data, David, we've created. And it had something like 20 different graphs on it. Yeah. And I... I work with data every day, and I can't, <laughs> I can't absorb twenty graphs. Yeah. So making the distilling out the clinical indicators to just three or four indicators that we track that are important that have a, a common understanding amongst the specialists, uh, not hitting them with, you know, a hundred different indicators that aren't meaningful. At the end of the day, there are only a couple of things that we concentrate on at Caprini on a systematic basis, things like hospital-acquired complications, and then drilling down on those, you know, what's your infection rate? What's your return to theatre rate? Yeah. Those are, are common indicators where the specialists understand that the, those adverse outcomes have an impact on patients. Patients that had a, a, a MET call and then went to ICU, mm-hmm. um, patients that uh, came back to hospital within 28 days through the, through our emergency department. Those are the sort of indicators that um, that we find are meaningful yeah. um, and create variation. One of the issues that we've discovered is when you give doctors 
cluster data like graphs, mm-hmm. they immediately self-justify. Yeah. It's almost a, a knee-jerk reaction. They'll look at it and say, oh, yep, I, I'm an outlier. I'm outside the you know, uh, 95% confidence interval in my funnel plot. Yeah. But you have to realize I'm different. Yeah. Um, all my patients are sicker and older than my colleagues. The GPs in my area know that I specialize in this area. Yeah. Or, you know, I, all my patients come through the emergency department because I'm available and happy to take em- emergency cases. Yeah. And, and so they immediately come up with a, an internal validation for why their data is different. So what we found is when working with specialists, you need to give them the identity of the patients yeah. that have generated that data. Mm-hmm. So giving them a report and saying, you know, you had five hacks for this type of surgery um, and your colleagues only had one, mm-hmm. so your hack rate seems to be higher, yeah. most often doesn't change behavior. Yeah. But if you reflect back to the doctors, the names of the five patients who developed a hospital-acquired complication mm-hmm the doctors are much more likely to think, oh, yes, okay, I could have probably done that slightly differently yeah. um, and got a different outcome. Um, so the doctors think in terms of patients and patient harm. Yeah. Um, they don't think in terms of populations. Yeah, yeah. Nurses, nurses are different. Mm-hmm. Nurses tend not to have individual ownership for an individual patient. Yeah. Um, they work as a team. Mm-hmm. So giving nurses back reports on their urinary tract infection for their ward compared with the urinary tract infection rate for another comparable ward mm-hmm. it can be very helpful. Yeah. Uh, and nurses will then set up uh, action plans to reduce their urinary tract infection right. rates. Whereas, as I say, specialists tend not to. Yeah. If you, if you give them the population data, they say, oh, yes, but you don't understand. My patients are different. Yeah, yeah. Where do you think that comes from, David? Because obviously um, it's come from somewhere because, like you said, you know, the immediate reaction is there's some policing going on. There's some, you know, uh, they're checking up. They're looking at why this is – they're looking at the negative side of it, right? Immediately they think you're looking for things to kind of pull them up on. Where do you think that comes from? Um, And what steps have you taken to get them to realise – why you're sharing this information with them? I think medical practice, particularly in high-risk procedural specialties, creates an inherent insecurity. Mm -hmm. Nasty things happen to patients when you're trying to do your best. And if you're a neurosurgeon or a cardiothoracic surgeon or even a colorectal surgeon, or nasty things happen to people. People have cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do your best and they die. Mm-hmm. So you honestly try to do your best for, for every patient you see, yeah. but you develop this insecurity because you, you're not quite sure if you're getting results that are, are better or worse than your colleagues. Um, you do what you've been taught, often that's 20 or 30 years ago, and haven't really thought about what's happening. There's enormous change in the way healthcare is delivering, and most specialists struggle to keep up. A lot of that research is leading edge and hasn't really been validated, and so you're not sure how much you should adopt or whether you should wait and see. So one of the things that 
I think has been important to us here at Gabrini is that the data is not just to encourage poor performers, it's to try and reduce some of that insecurity amongst very high quality performers. Yeah. And if you know, a few months ago now, I sent out the reports and one of our yeah, very good, technically very good, complex surgical surgeons rang me and said, what's this data mean, David? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, well, hang on, settle down. <laughs> First of all, it, sh- it shows you really good. Oh, yeah. he said, does it? <laughs> this is great. I like it. <laughs> yeah. So we had a conversation about the fact that he was performing well mm-hmm. in the vast majority of surgery that he performed. And then we said, but, you know, 150 operations last quarter, there were two cases that turned out perhaps slightly differently to what we expected. Mm-hmm. Have you thought about those two cases? Uh, and we had a discussion. Of course, he said, well, Give me the names. I don't know who I operated on on the 2nd of March last year. (laughs) Provide the specialist with the the names of the patients. He immediately said, aha, yes, I know who they are. Um, And yes, one of those, perhaps I could have done things slightly differently that would have led to a different outcome. Mm -hmm. And I said, this is great. Um, The data is to help you reflect, identify whether or not there are ways that you could have delivered care slightly differently to reduce the harm to the patient. Mm-hmm. That's all about all it's about. Again, when specialists email me or ring me or talk to me about their data, one of the questions they often ask is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with it? With it, yeah. 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 And I'll say, well, hang on, what have you done with it? And they say, well, I've looked at all the patients. And yeah, there's a couple of things I should probably change. I'll say, that's fine. Mm-hmm. That's where it ends. That's where it stops. The purpose of the data is to give you a basis to reflect, think about the patient outcomes. And as long as you've done that, I'm I'm absolutely satisfied. Yeah. There are are a few surgeons and a very, very few Mm -hmm. um, where I look at the data and I get concerned. Yeah. And in that case, I'll tell the specialist, look, it it raises some concerns. I have escalated it to our executive director. We've got our registrar pulling the files just just to review them. And in a few cases, uh, we'll ask for an external opinion mm-hmm. on a, a cluster of cases. Again, to see if there are issues of consistent patient safety mm-hmm. um, that we have a duty to to explore yeah. uh, and try and remedy. But that's that's very, very rare. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's I think it's great and it's great to be sharing what support is going on in the background to improve that patient care because like you said quite often the surgeons uh, the practitioners are usually the people that have to bear the brunt of you know if um, you know families and friends are concerned about um, you know surgeries or care of a patient whereas you know this can really help them to provide probably better context to those people as well in cases where things haven't quite gone as planned or whether things have sort of moved. So I think it actually provides a lot more sort of value both on both sides um, for the practitioners themselves, but also to be able to provide that to the families and friends because they're not just going, you know, based on what's happened with that particular one, but they're able to look at things broadly and probably compare different surgeries, different conditions, different backgrounds, all of those kinds of things that may have contributed to a complication as such. Yeah. One of our challenges is data integrity. 
and data validity. Uh, we discharge uh, 90,000 patients a year. Mm-hmm. And every now and again, errors creep in to what we've done. Yeah. The nurses in the theatre will fat finger the wrong number in. And so we end up with a gynecologist doing an appendectomy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or a cardiothoracic surgeon doing a gallbladder. Yeah. And maintaining specialist confidence in data that is inherently dirty yeah. uh, is a real issue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at the population level, it doesn't matter yeah. uh, when you've got the odd aberration. But when you break it down to the individual case and yeah. feed the individual cases back to the specialist, the data's got to be absolutely squeaky clean. Yeah. So what um, you, I, I was going to say, because that was going to be one of the things I wanted to ask you, is how are you collating the data and how are you making sure that, or how are you ensuring the validity of it is as accurate as possible? I think that highlights for me the need for uh, somebody with a clinical background. And I think it's probably a doctor, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, to look over the data before you send it out to the specialists yeah, and just eyeball it. The patient whose surgery started at five minutes to midnight and ended two hours later, mm-hmm. unless the staff are very careful, it looks like that patient spent 23 and a half hours or 22 hours oh, in the theatre. And to tell the surgeon that their average time for an urgent appendectomy <laughs> it's almost a day <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't go down well yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so to have somebody just look over the data mm-hmm. and say oh that looks odd i know an appendix operation doesn't take 24 hours yeah. um whereas you know a thumb implant re-implant may well take that long so again looking at the individual specialist and say, oh, that's odd. Mm-hmm. That specialist doesn't usually take your appendix out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then quickly looking at the notes and see what the operation report was and say, exactly. ha, yeah. there's a data error there. We, well, last quarter, there were about half a dozen patients that didn't have the surgery end time entered. Right. Um, and so computer doesn't like missing data, mm-hmm. uh, makes up some numbers. And so just going through and asking the theatre staff to go back and, and, and complete the data. Sure. At the end of the day, you can't make it 100% clean. Of course. And I think you have to be upfront. And that comes back to screening data, not diagnostic data, saying to the specialists, yes, there may be some errors. If there are, please let me know. I'd like to correct them. But please don't let that overwhelm your curiosity or willingness to reflect. So often I'll get messages back from Specialist saying, and your data's crap. Yeah. Um, here's one patient that was wrong. Yeah. How can I trust the other 200 patients you've course, told me about? Yeah. And working with those and say, look, I, I accept that, mm-hmm. but let's see if we can get use out of the data from, from what we have. Yeah. It's, a, it's an education process and a collaboration. Yeah. Are there any uh, methods or or processes that you're rolling out at the hospitals, David, to capture better data? So you mentioned, obviously, that sometimes it's just the entering of data, you know, to to help. You know, at the moment you mentioned, you know, you you sometimes just need a doctor to look over and look for any abnormalities with the data. Is there ways that you're working towards to help capture that at the entry point when you're capturing that data to reduce that and obviously then improve the quality of the the data that you're using to provide insights to the specialists? We run a number of reports uh, on a daily or weekly basis to try and trap uh, exceptions. 
Okay. Um, so uh, theatre cases that don't have a, an MBS item number associated with them um, go back goes back to the theatre unit every day. Right. Unusual theatre times goes back on a weekly basis to try and Fantastic. get those corrected. I, ideally, we would automate a scope of practice process that we haven't been able to do mm -hmm. um, to check this surgeon is you know, a plastic surgeon, um, they don't usually do cataracts. That That's hard. Yeah. Because, yeah, every now and again, um, specialists will do procedures that look as if they're outside their scope of practice, but in fact are in the context of, of very complex patients and, and the surgeon is competent to perform that procedure. Yeah. Yeah. And are you, um, or other hospitals or uh, across sort of your peers, are you finding that there's more of a focus on educating, say, the nurses, the administrative staff around the importance of entering that data in? And, and have you seen a change in the last five years around, you know, the, the entry of the data through the administrative um, staff in the hospitals? Certainly here at Cabrini uh, with our data governance yeah. Group. There's been a significant increase in awareness of the integrity and validity of the data right through our organisation, you know, from patient services who admit the patients through to theatre staff entering data, uh, through to our coding staff, uh, making sure you know, that the condition wasn't apparent on admission. Yeah. So, yes, we've, we've done an enormous amount of work and continue to do a lot of work um, on our on our data integrity. I really can't speak for the industry. Of course. Um, yeah. One of the challenges for us is getting meaningful benchmark data. Mm -hmm. The benchmarking reports that are available through various agencies at the moment are usually at the organisation level. Yeah. So your organisation's got a high hack rate and we're very cognizant of that and we work very hard on it. There are some reports that break those hacks down. And so we can say, aha, our urinary tract infection rate's high. Yes. We need to work on it. But they're at the organisational level, not at the uh, craft group or the individual surgeon level. And so we've started a process here at Cabrini um, sh sharing data with similar-sized hospitals at the craft group level. So the hack rate, hospital-acquired complication rate for, say, cardiothoracic surgery is probably somewhere between 15 and 20%. Mm -hmm. But for ophthalmology, it's 0.2%. And so it depends so much on the case mix yeah. of the surgery that you're doing, yeah. what, what is a reasonable hospital-acquired complication rate. And it's only as we've been breaking our data down um, to the, the craft group level or the, the patient profile level that we've been able to make significant change. And an example of that is urinary tract infection. We knew we had a high urinary tract infection rate according to our, our benchmarks, mm -hmm. but it wasn't until we broke it down um, and said, well, it looks to be in orthopedics, and then broke it down further and said it's elderly women mm -hmm. in orthopedics and broke that down further and said we have a really high urinary tract infection rate in elderly women presenting with a fractured neck of femur through the emergency department that we've been able to materially change rate. And with that specific data, we've been able to go to the emergency department and say, we think your catheter insertion techniques in elderly women yeah. is needs improvement. And we've been able to go to the orthopedic surgeons and say, look, you've got yeah. to take catheters out as quickly as you can. 
and we've dropped the um, urinary tract infection rate to about a third of what it was in an orthopedic surgery, which you know we're, we're really excited about. Oh, but gosh. when when you tried as an organisation wide indicator, nobody took responsibility. Nobody really knew why. It was only when we dr- drilled down to specific patient types and specific procedures um, that we've been able to make a, a substantial difference. So benchmarking really, I think, needs to mature so that we know what the malnutrition rate for colorectal surgery patients yeah. is, what is the urinary tract infection rate or the delirium rate for orthopedic patients. Mm-hmm. It's at that level that your benchmarking becomes really useful. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And look, thank you so much because I think um, everything you've shared really sort of um, highlights um, what you know what you're doing and why why you're doing this and and also um you know provides comfort to people like myself knowing that there's so much more analysis that goes on in the back end when it comes to patient care and diagnostics and um you know whatever it may be i guess one of the challenges and this is probably across the board i suppose private hospitals public hospitals that some analytic leaders and executives would be facing um, is, you know, how where do they start if they don't necessarily have a very strong, I mean, it seems like at Cabrini you've got a, a you know, a reasonably robust function and team there that's working and continuing to work with the specialists to provide better visibility, better value to, to help them. If there was an, an organisation who was at the early stages and wanting to do that, what one piece of advice would you give the um, the leaders in terms of when they start this journey? You know, what would your advice be in terms of what where they should start so that they don't build up this barrier that you you're still you know sometimes breaking down with with some of the specialists like what I suppose strategy or or approach do you think would work well for organisations who haven't yet started this reporting or or are doing it at the level perhaps that perhaps you are? I think there's a couple of things to start with. First of all, identifying a very small number of indicators, mm-hmm. things like delirium, frequent have a material impact on falls, length of stay patient experience, all of those. So start with a small number. Mm -hmm. Make sure the indicators have clinical relevance. Mm -hmm. So if you go to a specialist and say, look, your delirium rate is high, what can we do about it? They say, yeah, okay, I'll look at my opioid prescribing practice or whatever. Mm -hmm. Make sure it can be changed. And so talking to interventional cardiologists about their atrial fibrillation rate, they probably can't change it. So it's not a good indicator. Yeah. Um, but, you know, talking to uh, interventional cardiologists about their time from arrival to cath lab, arrival in the ED to cath lab is material because it can significantly impact on patient outcomes. It can be changed um, and they can work collaboratively with you and make sure you've got robust data or clean data. If you get those three things is it frequent and material? Does it have relevance to clinicians? Mm-hmm. And can it be changed? Then you should have a really good basis yeah. to start with two or three indicators that are material. It also means that as you start reporting, um, you're going to see success. Yeah. Uh, and the rate will come down and you can champion it and demonstrate the value of sharing data 
uh, everybody gets excited. The organisation's improving its performance, and then you can then you can start spreading it out into some of the more difficult or challenging indicators. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. I think definitely what you shared is going to be, um, yeah, absolutely useful for the listeners. Um, in terms of just wrapping up this session, I guess I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on where do you, I was going to ask you sort of initially, you know, what does the ideal healthcare environment look like? And I think that's a very, you know, open question and so many, I mean, uh, you know, so many different, different ways that that can look like. But how do you see the healthcare and medical sector evolving over the last, over the next kind of three or five years? And where do you hope for it to be? There are a couple of issues. We desperately need standards, mm-hmm. not only standards in measurement, but standards in reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, so that a specialist that works across three or four hospitals receives standardised reports that they don't have to relearn every time they go to a, to a different hospital. Yeah. We need standards in measurement. We need standards in benchmarking. At the moment, every benchmarking agency uses a different graphical presentation and different denominators and numerators, uh, which, which is inherently confusing. I think a lot of the analytics can be automated, mm-hmm. but there will always be a role for clinical leaders to work with the individual specialists, given their training, socialization, mental health, I don't know what you call it, um, ability to interpret data and help them understand, coaching them to improve their performance. Ideally, uh, we would be able to identify centers of excellence. Mm -hmm. Um, So all of us uh, in hospital management have areas that our hospital doesn't perform as well as others. Yeah, um, and to be able to identify those centres of excellence and learn from them, and incorporate some of their techniques and processes here, so we would have a open, transparent, and sharing environment based on sound data that is comparable and best practices identified. Yeah, yeah, and look, I think the sharing of data is probably one of the most common themes I've heard all my guests talk about and I really hope that with everything that's going on and the you know the the progress that we're making that that certainly starts to to happen um and help obviously improve this industry and and healthcare sector because I think um there's so much that individuals like yourself um and teams can bring to to improving every aspect of the healthcare sector we need to make sure we phase the rollout of transparency I think it would be destructive if we gave the data to patients or patient advocacy groups before specialists learned what the data was about mm-hmm. and were able to interpret that themselves. So I think we owe it to the specialists first yeah. to educate them, get them comfortable with the data and have had the opportunity to improve where they can before we start giving the data out to patients or patient advocacy groups that the, their use of that data may be appropriate, but but I think it would be unfair. Yeah. Unless unless we're very careful in the phasing of that transparency. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But also the technicality of the data, because I wouldn't I wouldn't understand it in the same way that someone like you or you know your specialists would. So I think there's there is that risk of how it's shared and what's shared and and how it's how it's shared, I suppose as well. So that it, it is something that 
individuals can can understand. Well, thank you very much, David. I've really, really enjoyed the conversation today. <laughs> I think it will certainly resonate with a lot of your peers, but I also think you shared some really great golden nuggets there. So um, look, I'm sure people will probably want to reach out and connect with you. Um, are you happy for them to do that, Violet? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks very much, Rita.